Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Happy Easter. Welcome. So glad that you are here, whether you are in Centercourt East or Centercourt West or up in the loft or at the Woodlands campus, or whether you're worshiping online somewhere near or far today. We're just really glad that you're here. Happy Easter. It's a great day because we're celebrating the risen Christ. It's also a great day because our preacher today is Ben Stewart. He's one of our favorites, always a treat. So let's welcome Ben as he comes to bring God's word to us now. All right. Well, howdy. Well, happy Easter. Great to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, we are in Psalm 110. Uh, if you don't have one, it's okay. Uh, I'm going to read it over you. I'm going to read to you Psalm 110. Uh, we'll pray uh, and then jump into it together. So Psalm 110, uh, beginning in verse 1, <clears throat> says this. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He'll shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, thank you for this moment to gather around your word. I want to thank you for every person here with us. And uh, I I just want to pray, Lord, that you would help us, all of us, understand more of what you think about and what you care about. And I pray, Father, we wouldn't just understand it, but it it would change us. I pray we would understand the world better, understand you better and ourselves better as a result of this time together. And I'm asking for something significant, God, that, that I can't generate, a, a service can't. So rescue us from just attending a service. I pray, God, we could really, truly have a, a holy encounter with you. And um, we're asking for that. And so I just want to invite you guys, if you're willing, to take a minute and you pray. And ask him, if you're willing, um, say, God, please teach me something today. And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would um, use me and I would be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you may have been listening to that scripture reading I just did a moment ago and thought, why on earth did you pick that song? 
Of all the passages you could have read at Easter, you pick one about corpses and wrath and shattering things. Like, shouldn't this be a beat? Like I came for some encouragement, maybe something about angels singing and you've got something about destruction and random furniture. Like, why would you select that? Like what's wrong with you? It's Easter, what are you thinking? Well, let me say this, this Psalm uh, is actually an answer to a Bible trivia question. The word Psalm uh, is just another word for song. And so the Psalms were the song book of the people of God, starting from as far back as 1000 BC, when many of them were written, uh, up through the Old Testament into the New and even on into today. And this particular song, Song 110, is by far the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. That the people who knew Jesus touched him, talked to him, knew what he was like. This was by far their favorite song. They sang it the most. They talked about it the most. It was the top song on their playlist. So I don't know what you think about when you think about Easter. If you think about bunnies and brunch, things like that. For the New Testament people of Jesus, when they thought about Jesus's resurrection, when they thought about Easter Sunday, they thought about this song, which leaves the question, why? Why would this come to mind for them when they thought about Easter? And so I want to answer that, but not just so we can all know some Bible trivia of why they care about this song. I I want to know why they cared about it. And then number two, why does it matter for us? What relevance does this have for us? And I'll give you a hint about it at the outset. Like every song you listen to, no matter who sang it, every song in the world is a reaction to something. That's what songs are. You fall in love, you write a song, right? Someone breaks up with you or betrays you, you write a song, right? Uh, Songs are reactions to our experiences around us. And this song is a song about how we respond to fear. That's what drew them to this song. That's what I think will draw us to it. It's an antidote for anxiety. And I think that's relevant for us today because there's a lot of fear in the world today. 130 people killed by ISIS in Paris a few months ago. 31 dead in Belgium. 50 more today in Pakistan. Russia's prime minister came out last month and said, we have entered a new Cold War with America. There's a lot to be uncertain about in the world today. And there's political fears. Where's our country gonna go? And then there's personal fears, physically. What if I get sick? What if the people I love get sick? There's relational fears. What if that person doesn't love me back? What if that person betrays me? What if I'm gonna be alone? And then there's internal fears, not just the external anxieties, but internal fears of what if they find out this thing about me? What if this thing about me I hate never becomes untrue? And all of us have fears and anxieties that haunt us in the night. And you go, how do we respond to them? A lot of people, fear becomes anger. That's our response. For others, when we think about the anxieties, Externally, internally, we just pick up a screen and numb out so I don't have to think about the things that haunt me in the night. And yet here this Easter morning, we have a song that the people who knew Jesus sang into the face of fear. And I want us to do that as well. And so I want to look at two reasons why it meant something to them and why it means something to us. What's going on with this psalm? It's the answer to what we do when chaos comes to our door. The first thing they loved about this song and that we can love about this psalm is that it provides the confidence of knowing the seated king. That's your first point. It provides us with the confidence that comes from knowing the seated king. 
And you say, what do you mean? Well, this psalm was called an enthronement psalm. They were common in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the people of God had a king. He was usually the descendant of David. And when it was his turn to become king, he would rise up. A priest would put the crown on his head, seat him on the throne, and then they would sing a song that say, this is the new ruler of our nation. That was a pretty common thing. But this enthronement psalm is weird because it's not just a psalm about a descendant of David. It's actually a psalm sung by David. David was the great king of the Old Testament, the guy that killed Goliath. He was awesome. And every king after that was descended from that David. And yet in this psalm, it's David himself singing. And David says, the Lord, talking about God in heaven, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And the great King David says, there's somebody that I'm going to refer to as master. And the Lord is going to make my Lord king over all the nations. And he will shatter them with his scepter. That guy is not just going to be the king over Israel. He's going to be the king over all kings. Which leads to a natural question. Who's that guy? Who's the guy that's greater than David? Because when that guy comes on the scene, it says the people are going to part. They're either going to be people against him and they stand no chance or the people who are with him and they will rejoice in holy garments. Who is this guy that's going to divide the nations and rule over them? Who's this king? And the Old Testament never answers that question. Shuts the book, moves on. They're like, uh, okay, that song was weird. And they moved on. <laughs> and yet the New Testament people loved this song. Quoted it more than any other. Why? Why did it come up? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus brought it up. Because on the last week of his earthly life, he came riding into Jerusalem, the city of peace, on a, a donkey, riding in like he was a king. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes into the name of the Lord. They said, he is the son of David. He is the Messiah, the king we've been waiting for. And then he rode into the temple and set up shop like he owned the place and started teaching people. And they began to gather around him. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king we've been waiting for. And he would teach day after day. And then at the very end of his last public address at a sermon, he asked a question. Hey, who do you think the Christ is? Who's the king? And they said, he's the son of David. And then Jesus quotes this song. He said, well, if he's the son of David, why does David call him his master? Right? Because dads don't call their sons master. Amen? Am I right? Dads don't say yes, sir, to their sons. Sons say yes, sir, to, to dads, right? And he goes, and yet the great King David has a God that he refers to as my master. David kneels before this king. He goes, so who's that guy? And it says the crowd couldn't answer the question. And Jesus left. That's how he ended the sermon. Super weird. Last sermon he ever gave. He just mic dropped. Who's the Christ? <laughs> Son of David. You sure? Because David thought he was master. <laughs> and he walked off. And they're like, what was that? Who is that guy? Who is this king over all kings? And Jesus gets arrested. He's brought before the high priest. And the high priest says, so tell us plainly. You think you're the Christ? And Jesus said, you said so. There's still some debate on who the Christ is. So Jesus pushes the issue. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm the Christ. And he says, and you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. He said, I'm the king that reigns on high. That's who I am. And no matter how this trial plays out, you're going to see me enthroned over the nations. And his quote of this psalm is what got him killed. And so they murdered him on that cross. And then 
he beat death. He didn't stay dead. You know, in the Old Testament, there were a lot of sons of David, but you were a pretty good shoe-in for it if you were a success militarily. And here you see who is going to be this king. And they watch Jesus beat death. And his followers go, I think it's that guy. Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. He says, I'm a servant of the gospel. That is the royal proclamation of God concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter said it in his first sermon in that same Jerusalem. He says, David died and David was buried and we know where his tomb is. He said, but David acted as a prophet. He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ who wasn't abandoned to the grave, but Jesus was raised up. Therefore, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. If you beat death, you get to rule all of life. Military success makes you a king. And they said, this guy just beat death. There's no bigger enemy than that. There's no bigger enemy in your life than death. You run into a thief on the street, he may steal your wallet. You suffer a financial death, right? You got an enemy at school who talks bad about you, mocks you online, you could face some social death. And a lot of us fear that. You have someone at work that bypasses you for a promotion, that could keep you from some of your professional success. You face professional death. But death takes everything. It takes your friendship, your family, your possessions, your love. Death takes all and gives nothing back. It's the ultimate enemy. And Jesus Christ is the one man who faced it, it rolled over him, and then he rose up and beat it. And when you beat that kind of enemy, all other enemies combined stack up every king of every nation and they are like a footstool at the feet of that king. I love that part of the psalm. That when the psalmist is trying to quantify every other enemy you might face, he says they're like a footstool, the most optional piece of furniture in your home. <laughs> he doesn't even give them the dignity of a coffee table. And say they're like an end table of wrath. Nothing. He says they're just like the little stool for your foot. That's what it is. If this guy beat death, then no other thing you fear is even a contest. I love it. They're trying to write a, a ninth Harry Potter movie right now. Good luck, right? How do you build tension in Harry Potter number nine? In Harry Potter one through eight, what happened? He beat evil incarnate. Voldemort, right? The embodiment of evil, he faced it down and beat it. How? By taking that devil unto himself until it killed him and then rising from the grave to overcome it and liberate his friends. I think they got that idea from somewhere <laughs> and it worked for him, made a couple billion. He went through death and resurrection to beat evil in its face. That was Harry Potter one through eight. Who's gonna be the bad guy in nine? How are you going to make anyone scared of that? Well, some guy's going to come later and hurt Harry's feelings, right? Like, <laughs> there's no chance. No bad guy you come up with 
is gonna have a chance in the face of what he's already overcome. For you and I to be scared of the bad guy in Harry Potter 9, we would have to completely forget Harry Potter's one through eight. And for you to be scared of any enemy in your life, financially or physically or socially, you would have to forget this moment that the confidence afforded to the people of the king is we get to see he beat death. There's no enemy that's even a contest anymore. There's no thing that could terrorize me that stands a chance before this king. And I get the confidence of knowing the seated king. He rules over the nations and as history rolls out, all of our stories end in victory before this king. No one can stop us. The Roman emperor Diocletian longed to stamp out Christianity. In Spain, he set up two large pillars. One of them read Diocletian, Jovium, Maximum, Hercules, Caesar, Augusti. For having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and having extinguished the name Christian, which brought this republic to ruin. And the second pillar he erected in his honor read Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Hercules, Caesar, Augusti for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and have it extended the worship of the gods. What's the great irony of those pillars? That I bet not a single one of you in this room, maybe one history major in the back that's like, ooh, ooh, even has a clue who Diocletian, Jovium, Maximum, Hercules, Caesar, Augusti is. But we all know the name of Jesus. Why? Because he wins. He wins. No one stops this king. And I don't know what enemy you feel like is aligned against you, but when the Psalm says every king and every nation comes against this king, it says when our king takes his scepter, all the other enemies shatter. That's the imagery. They use that verb twice, shatters. What the psalmist is saying is when you get your head around who this king is, all of your enemies, the things you fear in the night are like pottery big, scary pottery. <laughs> and your king is like a rod of iron. That's what Psalm 2 says. Which sets up some tension. Who's going to win? When it's iron versus pottery, who's going to win that fight? I don't know. Well, maybe what happens if iron gets the first shot in? Iron wins. You go, okay, fine. But what if iron's not paying attention? And what if pottery slips in and gets a sucker punch from the back? <laughs> iron still wins. You will have it if pottery's got some friends. What happens if pottery establishes a caliphate? What do you think? It's in the Gallagher show. We're gonna stop it right there, right? <laughs> What I think is the confidence that the people of Jesus get is that our king beat death. There is no other enemy that is more strong than a footstool compared to our king. And we may suffer for a night, but all of our stories end in victory with this king. That's how Rome was shaken and overturned is because they saw men like Polycarp stand at his trial and they say, deny your Christ. And him say, for 86 years, he's been faithful to me. I'm not gonna deny him now. They said, well, we're going to throw you to the beast then. 
And he said, call him. Repentance from the greater to the worse is something impossible for us. He said, you're not scared? And we'll burn you alive. And he said, you thread me with a fire that lasts for a moment. You're ignorant of the flames that last for a lifetime. And Polycarp was unafraid of death and then prayed for God's mercy on the very people who wanted to kill him. And when Rome saw people with an unshakable confidence like that, it changed a nation. What will happen when the people of Jesus take up the confidence that's rightfully theirs? Our king beat death. No one can shake us. Set off your bombs, man. You don't scare me because we win. All our stories end in victory. There's only one option. You're either his enemy and you get shattered or you're his friend and you rejoice because he's the king. He's the king. And yet some of us hear this and you go, wow, that's, I can see where that'd make some people feel good. Jesus is a king, victorious, shatters his enemies. That's awesome. I don't feel real pumped about that though because the truth is I don't feel like I'm on his team. I'm not one of the ones arrayed in holy garments celebrating him as he destroys those who oppose him. You know what, Ben? Honestly, if I'm gonna put myself in that scenario, I'm probably the guy who's about to get hit. And some of you hear this and you go, Ben, you don't know. You don't know what I've done, what I've said, where I've been, what I've been through, what I've experienced, what I've touched, the damage I've done. You don't know. And the truth is a victorious Jesus doesn't really pump me up because the truth is I don't think he likes a guy like me. I don't think he has a place for somebody like me. Some of us, we feel the weight of our sin. And so we don't like to be around things like this. And for many of us, we just want to flip on a screen and let it wash over us so we don't have to think about stuff like this. The seated king is not a comfort to us. But here's the good news. The reason the early church loved this song was because it gave them the confidence from the seated king and it gave them the compassion of the seated priest. Because the psalm goes on and says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you say, what does that mean? Who's Melchizedek? Never even met a Melchizedek. Any Melchizedeks here today? Probably not. Melchizedek is a guy who shows up one time in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And it's random. Abraham, the original Jew, Abraham, the father of the faith, is surrounded by enemy armies that want to destroy him, and God brings him victory. And he is in the midst of worshiping God who will rescue him. And in that moment, this guy just steps on the scene named Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a combination of two words, Moloch, which means king, and Sadiq, which means righteousness. He's the king that makes everything all right. And it says he was the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. And this guy steps onto the scene that's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And it says, and he was also a priest, which in the Old Testament people of God, nobody could occupy both positions of king or priest. You're one or the other. And this guy shows up. He is the king that makes things right and brings peace. And he is a priest. And Abraham the original Jew, the OJ, <laughs> kneels before this man and worships as Melchizedek blesses the father of the faith. And then he leaves. And you go, who the heck was that guy? Random, because he wasn't one of the Levitical priests from the people of God. He was a priest above all priests. Who was that guy that even the father of our faith comes and worships under his guidance? Who was that guy? Doesn't answer that question. 
And yet you get to the New Testament and you see when Jesus beat death, when you see the fact that he can beat death, you get the confidence that comes in his power. When you see the reason why he faced death to begin with, you get the comfort that comes from his love. Because the New Testament will tell us Jesus is this priest. Hebrews chapter six says, we have a sure and steady anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For the former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing their office. All priests die. But this guy is our priest permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. And I love that. Save to the uttermost. Why put in the uttermost? You're either saved or not saved. I think it's because some of us think, yeah, he'll save a certain kind of people. But I don't know if he can bring someone as far as me, as close as he needs to bring people. He says, no, he will save you however far you feel. He will bring you all the way into the very courtroom of God. That's who this priest is. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Every priest stands daily at his service, repeating the same sacrifices which never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time for his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, in the Old Testament, people understood they're guilty. We're not who we're meant to be. You'd bring a lamb to the temple and the priest would slaughter that. Someone innocent will die for what I've done. And that blood would pour out. And you would see that. And it was a picture. A picture of what was needed. But you would leave that next day and still feel guilty. Still feel like a mess. That's not sufficient. And the Hebrew writer says, no, it's not. Those priests die. Those lambs die. But we still don't feel okay. And for many of us, we're like that. We come to services and make promises to be better. Do little traditions and penances to try to make ourselves feel good. But at the end of the day, in the darkness alone, we never feel all right. And yet the writer of Hebrews reads this psalm and says, but Jesus came. Not to offer a lamb, but as John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away sins. I'm not gonna slaughter a lamb. I am the lamb. Once for all, perfect sacrifice. You can't make yourself okay before God no matter how hard you try, but I can. And I will be the sacrifice that lays my life down. What scares us the most about death is sin. What's scary about death is dying knowing we're not okay and then having to face a holy God. And the Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us and it buried him, and yet he rose from the grave. If you transgress against us as a society, we arrest you and put you in jail. How do you know when your debt to society's been paid? That cell door opens and you go free. How do we know Jesus' payment was sufficient for our sin? Because that stone rolled away and he walked away free. 
He said, I will take all your sin, all your disappointment, all your addiction, all your failure. I will take it upon me. And he who knew no sin became sin on that cross and it killed him. And he buried it in the dirt. And then he rose as a priest to connect man to God and say, the sacrifice has been paid. See, the early church, they loved, their favorite part of the song was the seated part. They loved the sitting part of this psalm. Which some of you go, that's a coincidence. The sitting part of the service is my favorite part, right? <laughs> Let me tell you why they loved it. Because in the Old Testament, the priests didn't have a chair in the temple because you're never done making sacrifices. And some of you know what that's like, trying to never be done, trying to make yourself okay. Jesus offered once for all, perfect sacrifice of himself. And then the text says, and when he was done, he sat down. It's done. I paid it. I know what you've done. I know who you are. You're why I came. And you trust me, and I make you clean. I make you new. Therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with our hearts made clean from an evil conscience. Oh, I believe so many of us need that today, desire that today. It's available in him. We marvel at the power Jesus has over death then we marvel at the compassion he has to face death for us. It's why he came. He's not here to smash you. He's here to save you. And I don't care who you are or what you've done. He has come as a priest to make you clean. So I remember the first time I ever flew to LA. I got on a plane, it was years ago, and it was when I was part of a ministry that the director of the ministry said, anytime you get on a plane, when you sit down, that's a call from God to share Christ with the person who sits next to you, right? So you've got to do it, which always stressed me out because as an introvert, that's a real terrifying moment for me, right? Which I know sounds weird. Like this moment, I'm pretty comfortable. One-on-one, -on -one, I get lost pretty quick. Like, uh, is everything else okay? I don't know. I don't know what to say. And so striking up conversations about eternal things when I was in my 20s was really tough. I didn't know how to do it smooth. Like, so, uh, you know, it's going to happen when you die. Uh, you know, I was just like, I don't know how to do this in a way that's not super weird. And so I would always get stressed when I got on planes. People thought I was afraid of flying. And I'm like, no, I know I'm fine. It's the evangelism that's terrifying me. Right. And uh, <laughs> I remember getting on that plane and just praying like, Lord, you're the best thing, and I want people to know Jesus. I just want to do it in a way that's not awkward. So God, help me overcome me to get there. And so I'm praying all this stuff. People are loading onto the plane, and as more and more people get on, nobody's sitting by me. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe I get a free pass, you know? <laughs> Hallelujah. And then finally, one last guy gets on the plane, and he's huge. And he is such a mountain of muscle. He makes like a V, you know, and his shoulders are so wide, they like can't fit through the luggage compartment. You know, he has to like turn sideways. He's like, sorry guys, some of the muscles are too huge. Excuse me, right? And just kind of sashaying down that deal. And he's wearing all black sweats that he had to like cut a notch in because his pec muscles were so big that sweater couldn't contain it. He had like a bone hook necklace, right? I'm like, sure. So he comes walking up, scars running down his face. And he leans over to me and he goes, Hey, I think that's my seat there next to you. You know, I was like, of course it is. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
And he sits down next to me, and I'm, I close my eyes because I'm trying to center. You know, I was like, okay, Lord, like I want to talk about you. I really do. I think you're the hope of the world, and even this guy. And Lord, please help me figure out what I'm supposed to say, how to get into this. And I'm praying all that. And when I say amen, open my eyes, I look over, and he's leaned across the armrest, and he's staring right at me. <laughs> and he says, so what do you do? And I said at the time, I said, well, I'm a youth pastor. I tell pe young people about Jesus. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I teach Brazilian jiu-jitsu to police officers. <laughs> Makes sense. And he said, and I go around and I tell people my story. I said, well, lay it on me. He said, you know who Nancy Kerrigan is? Like, yeah, I know who Nancy Kerrigan is. America's darling, shoe in to win the gold, the Olympic figure skating, right? And then someone hired a hitman uh, to club her in the knee to try to take her out. Tanya Harding, big scandal, I'm making a movie about it right now. I'm like, yeah, I know who Nancy Harding is, or Kerrigan is. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, I clubbed her. It's like, okay. <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, I went to jail for that. I was like, it's tough but fair. <laughs> he said, you know, I don't care how tough you think you are, how together you think you got it. Like when you're alone in that cell and just have to face you. He said, it got real, real real for me that I was wasting my life and I was a failure. And not just a failure, I was a joke. We all laughed at that guy. And he said, but there in that cell of condemnation, he said, a man came to me and he told me about Jesus. A Jesus who came for me, not to condemn me, but to cleanse me. Not to cast me aside, but to draw me in close. To live a perfect life I couldn't. To die to pay for the sins I had committed. And then beat sin and beat death so I could be something new. And he said, so I put all my faith in that Jesus. And now I will go anywhere and tell anyone about a Jesus who came to save even me. And that's what we're talking about. The man who has the power over sin and death. And the man who has the compassion to face death for you and for me. To make us something new. That's why we celebrate him. He's the king. And he's a priest. We get confidence because of his power. We get comfort because of his love. And that's what he's offering to any who would come freely and dress in his holy garments. That's what he has for us. It's not about being perfect, turning over a new leaf, trying to be a better person. It's about coming to the perfect one and saying, I want to know you because it's through your blood and through your sacrifice and through your priesthood that I get invited up into the family of God. And God is in the business of making enemies into friends. He's been doing it all along. He took a terrorist named Paul who was killing Christians in his religious fervor in the New Testament and he made him an evangelist, the writer of much of the New Testament. God's that powerful. And so we have confidence in a God who can change even the heart of a terrorist into an evangelist. He'll save them. He'll save this guy. He'll save you. Anybody who will come and taste and see that he's good. That he's good. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you that the message of Easter 
is not turn over a leaf, get a good start, try to become a better person. The message of Easter is we're not, we're not good. We are beautiful. There's something majestic about every one of us because we're made in your image, God. But we are broken because of sin. We are not what we're meant to be, all of us, and we know it. But the good news of Easter is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we could not and did not. He took on sin and death that we deserved and he buried all of our guilt and regret and transgression in the grave. And then he rose, rose to be a priest, to connect us to God for any who will cry out and say, I want that. Rose to be a king, to rule, that no enemy will ultimately triumph, but those who come to him all of our stories end in victory in him. So God, I pray for any here today that they just thought religion was be a good person and maybe they're understanding it's not. It's about attaching yourself to the holy person of Jesus Christ. I pray even now they would cry out to you and say, I want you. I wanna belong to you. I wanna be yours. And I just believe there's some of you here that this is your morning. You maybe just came because you thought you were supposed to, but God has a different plan for you. And you say, I wanna be his. Jesus, forgive me, heal me, rule me. You're the king. And if that's you, you cry out to him and know there is forgiveness for those who confess and trust in Jesus Christ. You walk out of here knowing that's yours in him. And I'd invite you, if you wanna pray with someone, we'll have a prayer team up front at the end of the service. You come pray with one of them. Tell the person who brought you what God's doing in your heart. Let us celebrate with you. And then God, for the rest of us, I know there are fears that haunt us, fears externally as we look at how shaken our world is, fears internally as we look at how imperfect we are. Thank you, God, that you have sent us a king who rules the nations that we know our story ends in victory. I pray our coworkers, friends, family would see in us a confidence as we face whatever trials come our way, because we know we belong to the one who ultimately wins. I pray, Father, they would see a comfort in us that even when we fail, we know we have a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest who comforts us. So we come with confidence and a clean conscience to him. God, may your comfort dwell in our hearts. May your confidence lift our heads. And may the world marvel at a people who walk totally differently because we get to know the seated priest and the seated king. It's you we celebrate today, Lord Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, the Grove Graven Discipleship Director here at FaithBridge, and I'm here with Bible teacher Ben Stewart, who just brought our Easter message, the Song of Easter, a look at Psalm 110, where we looked at um, some passages where we talked about how this psalm was brought into the New Testament as one right. of the favorite ways that New Testament believers looked at Jesus, sang about Him, remembered Him. That's right. um, it was such an interesting look. We had lots of questions that came 
amen yeah. from this, <laughs> beginning sure. with this this uh, priest, Hebrew priest, and king that you brought up, right. Melchizedek. Right. I got it right. That's you did. it. Okay, yeah, good. All right. It. So tell us. You talked about him and Abraham, right. um, and you right. mentioned that it's just kind of a brief mention right there at the beginning with him. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us? This question came in. Can you tell us anything more about him? Well, I can. Maybe the best thing to do would be this. You know, you can read in Genesis where he shows up. It's very briefly. It's only one chapter that he shows up. But the writer of Hebrews, he comes up in Hebrews chapter 1, 6, 7, 8. I mean, the writer of Hebrews goes through a lot about um, why he matters in the conversation. And, you know, the book of Hebrews is basically talking about how Jesus is the superior whatever. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. And there was an Old Testament priest system, but Jesus is superior to that. And here's why. And so much of the book of Hebrews is actually an unpacking of Psalm 110. So uh, I would just direct you to the book of Hebrews <laughs> rather okay. than me trying to unpack all of it right in this second. Yeah, so you can because read it's that. great information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would be a great place to start. Uh, for sure. Okay, and so you did walk us through and talking through the process of forgiving sins and mm -hmm. how um, Jesus replacing that system right. that we see in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and a question came in around, um, can someone who has committed the ultimate sin be forgiven? Yeah, well, that's tricky because I'm not sure what they mean right. when they say the ultimate mm -hmm. sin. You know, I will say... Um, there's only one place in the Bible where you see a, a sin mm -hmm. being called one that will not be forgiven. And it's Mark chapter three. It's Jesus says it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And you go, what's he taught? What's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you look at the context, Jesus had been healing people by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit empowering the work of Jesus in order to authenticate Jesus really is the son of God. He really is the king. And the religious leadership looked at Jesus and said, we can't deny his power. We're just going to say his power is from Satan. You're from the devil. And Jesus said, there's no forgiveness for that. So what is the unforgivable sin? It's looking at Jesus and saying, you are not the son of God. You are not powered by the spirit of God. You are evil and powered by the devil. So what is the unforgivable sin in the Bible? It's rejection of Jesus Christ. And so is there forgiveness for rejecting Jesus Christ? No. Now, can you reject him and then come to believe in him? Yeah, that's happening all through the Bible and all through history. But if you go to your grave with an absolute rejection of Jesus Christ as who he says he is, that is the one thing that's going to get you through the door in the presence of God is belief in him. You reject him, that's not forgiven. So biblically, that's what you see. So I'm not sure what all they, they meant by that, but Mark chapter 3. Well, good. Yeah, that's a good clarification. Yeah. Okay, and so you did talk about fear, um, mm -hmm. a very relevant topic, obviously, with everything that's going on. You gave very clear examples of things that are... Right make our feel, world feel a little bit out of control sometimes. Um, and this person wrote in and said, um, you talked about um, Christ overcoming our fear and how we don't have to fear in that. Um, and this person says they've surrendered their own trials to God and they have no fear of the enemy. But what they do have fear of is that when the kingdom of heaven comes, that their loved ones won't be there. Mm -hmm. So how do they face the fear that their parents and brothers will not see the salvation because of their rejection of God? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, 
the Bible doesn't say you should never be anxious or never be fearful. That's a natural response to disturbing things. It's just what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. And the Bible's real clear on that. First Peter will say, you cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You know, Philippians will say, don't be anxious about anything, but let these requests be made known to God. So I do think it's right to... Paul said, I have unceasing anguish at the thought of the people I love not knowing Christ. So Paul's like, I am dis disturbed by that. It's right to be disturbed by that. But Paul talks about that in the context of Romans, where what does he do? He ultimately trusts in the sovereign guidance of God over history. So ultimately, what does he do? He comes back to the character of God and who God is and says, I rest in that. And so I do think we labor in prayer over our relatives. We're begging God that they would come to know Christ. But at the end of the day, we're saying, I trust you, God, with their story. I trust you with their life. And that's where our fears can find some comfort as we go. The guy running all of this is not chance. It's the king that we know who's strong and who's loving. So I think you, you beg God that, that your family and your friends would come to know and trust Jesus. And then you, and then you trust him in whatever he does. So uh, that's a really short answer to a really deep question, but that's maybe the, the, the simple answer, short answer to it. Good. Okay, so Jesus' resurrection, we talked a lot about that today, and, um, right. and, and the scriptures um, give a lot of detail about his life and his crucifixion. Um, this question comes in around um, the 40 days that happened between the resurrection and the ascension, essentially mm -hmm. the time between when he resurrected and then was taken up and went up to heaven. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of great details about that time. Um, the questions coming around is, um, that's important too. Why, why don't we know as much about that? Yeah, well, um I don't know that I would say, I'm, I mean, you do get, the, the Bible's very economic with a lot of things, mm -hmm. you know, so you run into people all the time that are like, why isn't there more mm -hmm. in the Bible about dinosaurs? And you <laughs> go, because they're not really the plot line. Mm -hmm. And you look at, you know, Ab Adam, you go, how many kids did he have? Well, read beginning of Genesis, he had at least seven, but we don't get the names of most of them, only three, why? Because the Bible's really economic. You don't see what these guys look like, they don't describe Moses' face, all kinds of details we tell in modern stories they don't care about. We're giving you the bare bones story. So when you get to Jesus, a lot of energy is around the fact that he lived a perfect life for us, and then a lot of energy is around his death, that he was a real person who really died, and it was to really take our sin. And then what really matters is the fact that he rose. And the rest of your New Testament is an unpacking of the fact that he rose, the implications of it. So the sightings of Jesus afterwards, are they relevant and important? Absolutely. And you get, I mean, you go, who were the key characters? Mm -hmm. He had women that followed him and you get a couple descriptions of his encounters with them. You get his disciples and you get at least three encounters with them. You get the massive bigger group of hundreds that followed him. You get a presentation of that in Acts. So you go... He had his inner circle of disciples, the outer ring of women, then the 500. You get an intersection with all of them. So you go, I, I don't know that, mm -hmm. that the Bible's like, we got it. Like, that's what we need. So I don't know what other story mm -hmm. you want to know mm -hmm. other than he unpacked the implications to them. But if you notice, that's what the rest of your New Testament is. So I guess I, I don't fully grab the question of going like, the, the Bible's going to cut you short on a lot of things, mm -hmm. but it's trying to give you the main narrative. He was a real guy was really perfect, really died, really rose. And that really has implications for the rest of your life. And so there are several, 
post-resurrection accounts, but there's not, according to the Bible, like in a lot of cases, there's as much as you need and not really any more than that. Good. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. That's it's good. good question, okay, though. so we have one other question that came in around... Um, uh, really post-resurrection. Um, yeah. This person said um, that they would love to hear more about the significance of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. well, sure, you should. We did a whole, uh, I think it was maybe three or four years ago, I did a sermon, an Easter sermon, an Easter sermon. Actually, all about the Holy Spirit. I think it might have been only two years ago. Is that right? Yeah, I, uh, I think so. I've had kids yeah. in the last, I don't I, know I think it was, anymore. only a couple years ago. Well, then two ago. years ago, yeah. they can look it up because yeah, it's all it about that, mm -hmm. you know, um, much of why Jesus came, why did he die to move sin out of the way, to restore connection with God? How's that connection manifest in us? It's the presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why, according to, to John, the first thing he did when he saw his disciples again is, is he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That, that's what he came to bring, that intimate, animating presence of God in us. He had to move sin out of the way to bring that intimate relationship back. And that's the great gift of the book of Acts is we have the Spirit of God now in us, empowering us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, empowering us to manifest the fruit of God, joy, peace, and patience, and those things. And uh, so there is much about the, new, the Holy Spirit. Um, we did a sermon on its relevance to Easter two years ago. Mm -hmm. Maybe rather than giving that whole thing, I would say go yeah, check that I'd out. Yeah, go check it out. Uh, and check then about the, the Holy Spirit in general, yeah, we should be talking about Him a lot. And hopefully you'll hear about Him a lot in, in, uh, because the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, all have, have much to offer us. So. Awesome. Well, yeah. always a pleasure to have you back with us. And sure, we have one more week. Yeah, we'll see you back, back here yeah. next week. Awesome. So great. And we'll see you back here next week for Postscript. Keep your questions coming. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.